Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And uh, welcome to church this morning. Whether you're um, here in person, whether you're online, um, you're welcome here. And we, we hope, we pray that you feel that you belong. You're joining us on the first Sunday of, of Advent. And Advent um, is kind of a, a, a funny word. It, it's, it's from the Latin Adventus. It means, it means arrival. So we spend the next few weeks running up into Christmas just preparing for the arrival of Jesus, for the arrival of that celebration of Jesus' birth. And one of the ways that we do that is by lighting uh, an Advent candle around this Advent wreath. Um, I'm going to do that in just a moment. Before we do, I think it's worth pointing out, you won't find the Advent candle and Advent wreath in Scripture. It's not something that Jesus commanded us to do, to have a, uh, some kind of green circle on a table. That, that, that isn't the command, but it is something that's steeped in tradition. Um, it comes back way from like Middle Ages, long, long time ago. And the idea is this wreath is this circle, the, the never-ending love of Jesus, that no beginning, no end of God, and, and that kind of reminder. Then each of the candles has a reminder. So each week, we're, we're reminded of one more attribute, one more, one more thing about Jesus and about God that helps us remember the, the Christmas season. So the candles, today we're really focusing on, on hope, the hope or prophecy, the prophecy that, that comes with Jesus um, coming at Christmas, what God offers us as an incredible gift. So it's hope and then peace and then joy and love. And then on Christmas, Jesus, the Savior candle. So we're going to light that in just a moment. I'm going to read um, a passage from Isaiah, um, which reminds us of that hope that we have um, at Christmas. This is from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So just take um, a few moments to reflect on the hope that we have in Jesus and I'll light the first candle. Father, we thank you humbly for the hope that you bring, the hope we don't deserve. And we ask in this Advent season, you remind us of that hope daily. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we're thinking of Christmas and what is to come, you are all very welcome and invited. And everyone you ever meet from now until then are invited and welcome to join us on Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock on this floor, in this room, in this space. And we'll celebrate Christmas together on Christmas Eve. So please, please join us. Plan to join us. Um, it's going to be a really great time celebrating the Christmas season, celebrating Jesus and those promises we just talked about together. Um, next Sunday, um, we have a child dedication. We're calling it child dedication, not baby dedication, because some of the babies that um, were born during COVID are now children. So um, it's getting a little bit time to dedicate those before they go to college. So that'll be next weekend. If, if you have children that you want to dedicate, we would love to include you in that. You can just email me, phil, at lowmanhattanchurch.com. My own email address. That long email address. Email that. Um, and just, just a word. We're we calling it child dedication. Really... 
it's kind of more of a parent dedication. It's a moment that parents can show gratitude publicly for the gift of children that maybe doesn't always feel like a gift, but we know is a great gift. And it's this moment where, as a parent, you're, you're intending to parent in a way that, that draws your kids close to Jesus. You want them to know about him. You want them to, for them to discover who he has made them to be. And it's a public declaration of saying, that's what I'm going to do. And a chance for the parents to say, hey, church, I can't do it on my own, so join me. Um, and we don't get that opportunity very often to call on the church to be the church. So that's what it's about. So if, if you have children, you've never gone through that, we'd love to chat with you. I'd love to include you in that service. And if you don't, or if you've already been through that thing, we'd love for you to be here um, uh, during our service to, to be the church and to respond to that call of our parents saying, we want help. This is not something we can do alone. We would love for you to be partnering with that. Um, before um, Alicia um, speaks to us this morning, um, I just wanted to tell you a few things. Um, this, this is obviously an event space, and we set it up pretty much from scratch each Sunday. And there have been um, so many things that have gone wrong this morning. We have had so many challenges in terms of audio and, and visuals and candles and, and all the kind of things that could have been difficult were difficult this morning. If you're watching us online and you're struggling to hear, we're very sorry. Um, the podcast will be up soon. You'll be able to listen there. But here's the, here's the thing that struck me. If you are here or if you're watching online and you can hear us, I don't think it's by accident. I think God has something important to say. And I think that's why it's been a bit of a struggle this morning. So um, I'm going to read our scripture for the message. If you'd like to stand with me. It's from Revelation chapter 2. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. That's it? Oh, I thought there was two. Oh, that's it. Oh my goodness, this is a short message. <laughs> well, then this is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. <laughs> So hopefully that is everything that's going to go wrong this morning. That's it. Clean slate from here. Can you hear me okay? Good morning, everyone. And happy Thanksgiving. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Our family's Thanksgiving was great because we were together. And we ate turkey. And we went to Target. And we saw the Stansberries. Hi, guys. <laughs> we played games. A lot of games. And in our family, we really love word games, like Scrabble, Dictionary, Scategories, Boggle. That's our jam. Um, so it's in that spirit that I want to bring all of us back to grade school English this morning. Does anyone remember what an idiom is? An idiom, an expression. It's defined as a group of words whose meaning is it's established by its very use. You know, you can't kind of just look at the words and piece it together through the individual words. I love expressions. They're such a beautiful aspect of language, right? That with just a turn of phrase, you can describe something deep and rich. 
There are a lot of cool expressions from the Bible, you know, like writing on the wall, that comes from Daniel, or um, by the skin of your teeth, that one's from Job. That's just a couple of examples. The list goes on and on, which makes sense because at one point in history, the Bible was the common source. Um, So a lot of Bible-inspired expressions would be so ingrained in our language that whether you know the Bible or not, um, they're well known. There's one Bible expression um, that I'd like us to spend time on this morning, and that's manna from heaven. Manna from heaven. Here's how the idiom dictionary describes manna from heaven. An unexpected benefit or assistance, especially at the time when it is needed most. Um, So uh, it gives an example. Um, Shay, if you can turn to the next slide. The example from the idiom dictionary is, I had no idea we would be getting a bonus this year, but it was like manna from heaven, just in time to pay some of my holiday bills. So I think if I were to pull a random group of New Yorkers on the street and ask them, what do you think manna from heaven is? I think they'd all say some version of that, right? And if I were to pull all of you, I think if I were to ask you, what's manna from heaven? You'd all say some version of that. But you know who would disagree? You know who would disagree with that definition and with all of you? The Israelites from Numbers 11. They came to hate manna from heaven. You know, we say, manna from heaven. They said, oh, manna from heaven. You know, there's a dichotomy here. And here in this dichotomy, I think the Lord has a message for us. So I want to talk about it today in three parts. Part one, when blessings become curses, when blessings become curses. We'll talk about how the Israelites came to hate manna from heaven. And we'll spend some time asking, What's the manna in our lives, all right? And then part two, build a memorial. And we'll talk about how God instructed the Israelites to keep the right perspective on the manna. And we'll talk about how we can keep the right perspective on our blessings. And then part three, um, the hidden manna, the real manna, Jesus. You know, how does everything that we talk about in part one and everything we talk about in part two point to Jesus? All right, so let's get into it. Part one, when blessings become curses. To understand manna from heaven, you have to understand the story of the Israelites. And if you've ever even just kind of skimmed the Old Testament, then you know that most of it is devoted to telling the story of the Israelites, to God's chosen people. Genesis covers the creation of man, the fall of man, Um, the spread of sin, the judgment which comes in the form of the flood, then the spread of nations. And the Israelites trace their roots back to all of that, to Adam and Noah, then Abraham, then Jacob. And Jacob himself is later renamed Israel, and all of his descendants come to be known as the nation of Israel. Jacob is the one who brings his family to Egypt to escape famine. His favorite son, Joseph, had paved the way earlier. Um, He went to Egypt, he found favor with the Pharaoh, and he was able to open the doors to Jacob and um, Jacob's descendants. Um, But eventually Joseph dies, and eventually a new Pharaoh takes over, one who doesn't have the same affection for Jacob's family. And that Pharaoh, he starts to worry about the number and the strength of the Israelites. So he enslaves them. But these are God's chosen people. Um, So God appears to Moses, his chosen one, to lead his chosen people out of Egypt. There's a showdown between God and Pharaoh, between God and Pharaoh's magicians, and it takes the form of the ten plagues. 
In the tenth and final plague, God kills all the firstborn sons of Egypt. But the Israelites are set apart. They're instructed by God to paint the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. Um, They're spared. Pharaoh's own son is killed, and that's the tipping point. He finally agrees to let the Israelites go. But the story doesn't end there because God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh changes his mind, and he starts to pursue the Israelites. Um, And this sets up for a magnificent demonstration of God's power. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites cross on dry ground, and the sea collapses down on the Egyptians. So let's pause there for a moment. If you're new to reading the Bible, I'd really encourage you to get into the Bible. You know, especially in these big, pivotal moments. What do I mean by that? Are there any fans of Friends here? Um, There's this episode where they're all in London, they're there for Emily and Ross's wedding, and Joey is super excited to do some sightseeing, right? He's dragging Chandler along with him, and he's got this big pop-out map of London, and he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to figure out where he is, and finally he says, I've got it. I've got to go into the map. So he sets the map down on the ground, and he gets into it. I think that we need to have a Joey mentality when it comes to reading the Bible. First time those words have ever been uttered. We need to have a Joey mentality when it comes to reading the Bible. We've got to get into it. We can't just read it. It's not an instruction manual. It's not a recipe. The Bible is history, right? But not just any history. It's his story, the story of how much God loved his people, the story of how much God loves, present tense, loves his people. And you can't just read a love story. You have to get into it, right? So let's go back to that big pivotal moment, right? And let's try to imagine it and experience it along with the Israelites who are living it, right? So first, you have to experience their fear. They're at the Red Sea. Uh, Death is all around them. They've got the formidable sea in front of them. You can't escape that. You've got the murderous Egyptians behind you. You can't escape that. Um, And it's here in this fear and hopelessness and desperation that God moves. He moves. And so second, you have to experience their awe, right? Coming out of the fear, you have to experience their awe as God moves with a demonstration of supernatural power never seen before, and it's never been seen since, a parting of the sea to rescue his people, to save them. The Israelites saw that. They experienced it. They lived it. And there's only one possible response when you live that, when you cross dry land with a wall of water to your right and a wall of water to your left. You put your trust in the Lord. You praise the Lord, and they did. So now you have to experience their song. The Bible says in chapter 15 of Exodus that after the great rescue, Moses and the Israelites sing a song to God. And here are some of the lyrics. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And the song ends with these awe-filled verses. The Lord reigns forever and ever. You know, this is a song filled with wonder and awe and reverence, and it could rival any of David's songs in the Psalms. And you have to know they're not just singing, right? They're not just saying these words, singing these words. They're down on their knees. They're weeping. Their voices are breaking. Their arms are outstretched, reaching for God. So now we move away from this big, pivotal moment. 
but try to stay in the experience. Right? From here, they start their journey into the promised land that God has promised them, and it's not an easy journey. Just three days in, they start to grumble because they're thirsty. So God provides water. And then a month later, they grumble again because they're hungry. And this is what they say. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. So a month after they're rescued, and after they sing an epic love song to God, the Israelites are so miserable that they begin to reminisce about Egypt, about the place where they were enslaved. The Lord is angry, of course, when he hears this, but he provides. He says, I will rain bread down from heaven. And he does. That night, the people eat quail, and then they eat manna. And the Bible says it first appears as a layer of dew on the camp. And when the dew evaporates, something else appears in its place. The, the Bible describes it um, thin flakes like frost. Um, the Bible calls it frosted flakes. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't call it frosted flakes. The, the Bible calls it a bread. And it says that it was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. It appears from thin air. It's a miracle food. The Israelites had never seen it before, and they call it manna. But this manna, it doesn't satisfy the Israelites for long. A couple years later, and this is in Numbers 11, the Israelites complain again. The Bible says, again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Anything but this manna. This is just a couple years after the parting of the Red Sea. This is just a couple years after their epic love song. This is just a couple years after the supernatural provision of a food that they had never seen before. Anything but this manna. That hardly fits with the definition that we just read, right? It hardly fits with our understanding of the word. They've lost the proper perspective on their blessing. What once tasted like honey is now bitter. God responds by raining meat down on them, right? The very meat that they asked for. Um, but the Bible says that while the meat was still between their teeth, that God struck them with a famine. There is a concept in finance called time decay. Before I lose you, it's actually pretty simple. Um, imagine a chart, okay, where time moves like this across the x-axis, and value moves up and down like this on the y-axis. Time decay is what happens to the value of an options contract over time. So the value of the option starts here, at peak value. Right? And time decay says that as time goes on, the value falls, and that it actually accelerates. The fall accelerates as you move into contract expiry. I think blessings are like that. I think blessings suffer from time decay. When God pours a blessing on you, you get down on your knees and weeping with arms outstretched, you praise him and praise him, declaring that he is the Lord forever and ever. You're here at peak blessing. But then a few days go by and you get thirsty and the value of your blessing starts to go down. 
You know, years go by, you're wandering in the desert, you're hungry, and the value of your blessing starts to go down until you start to see it as a curse, until it curses you. Manna from heaven becomes anything but this manna. So for new Bible readers, um, we talked about this idea of getting into the Bible, right? Of really trying to experience it along with the Israelites who are living it. Something else that I encourage you to do is to realize that we are them. To do that, you have to look beyond the setting, right? And that's hard because the setting is really specific. It's like 4,000 years ago in the desert. It's hard to look beyond that. And it's easy to write off scripture as irrelevant when you focus on the specifics of the setting. But if you can look beyond the setting, you'll realize that we are them. We are them. We are the Israelites. Their struggles are our struggles. Their weaknesses are our weaknesses. So I want you to spend a moment to take stock of your life right now. Is there something that you're struggling with? You know, if you look at your living situation, your job, your relationship, and you walk it backwards on the time chart that we drew, was there a point in time that the thing that you're struggling with was a blessing? You know, for example, did you pray that you would move to New York City? Was it your dream to live here? And then when God moved you here, did you find that it was really hard living and you're in despair? Um, did you pray for the job that you currently have? Did you say, please, Lord, please just let me have this job? And now that you have it, you don't get paid enough? You know, your boss doesn't get you? Um, what about your relationship? Did you pray that God would send you a spouse? But now that you've been married for a couple of years, you've hit a rough patch and you can't stand your husband or wife. We're the Israelites. So I want to go back to this concept of time decay, and you'll see that it's not just a concept, right? Because you could say that we just forget our blessings. You could say that. I think it'd be easy to say that, but I don't think that's it. The Israelites didn't forget manna. They couldn't forget manna. They were eating it every day, but they began to regard it differently. And that change in perspective is a hallmark of the devil. He expertly uses time decay. But God knows about the devil's tools, and he knows that we need tools too. So he tells us very plainly in the Bible what we're to do. He says, build a memorial. So that brings us to part two of the message today, build a memorial um, so that you stay at peak blessing, so you don't allow the devil to use time decay against you, to drag your blessing down to a curse. You can find lots and lots of examples of memorials um, all over scripture, but let me call out a couple for you. Um, that are found in the very stories that we're talking about this morning. So in Exodus 16, after God introduces manna for the first time, he said to the Israelites, go take a jar and put a measure of manna in it so the generations to come can see. Another example happens later. In Joshua 4, the Israelites are finally about to enter the promised land after 40 years in the desert. Um, but the Jordan River is flooded. They can't cross. God miraculously stops the flowing river, and then at that moment, God tells Joshua, make a memorial out of 12 stones, just like the jar with the manna. God tells them while they're at peak blessing, build a memorial before time decay can take over. A couple years ago, I felt God press on me to build a memorial to mark my family's blessings. 
I took my instructions straight out of the pages of Exodus and Joshua. Um, I pulled a big glass vase out of my closet, um, just like the jar with the manna, but mine's from Pottery Barn. And um, I bought a bunch of stones about this big, you know, with flat surfaces so that I could write on them. Um, you know, they were um, probably just like the stones from the Jordan River, except mine are from Amazon. So my husband Jason and I, we took these things and we drove to the place where we knew that God had rescued us, you know, to the place where he set apart our lives. And we prayed, we prayed. And we wrote each of the big blessings of our lives down on these stones, you know, one for the families that we were born into, you know, our parents and our siblings, um, these families that the Lord blessed us with, one for our son Noah, one for our daughter Lucy, um, one for the crisis that God used to lead us into a relationship with him. We were thankful for that. You know, one for this church, one for Jason's job, one for my job. So my job, I've been at my job for almost 18 years. And this year, I was gunning for a promotion, a promotion that I prayed for, a promotion that I was absolutely sure that I had earned, a promotion which ultimately did not come through. I was so disappointed. You know, I had some long talks with God about this promotion well before I got the bad news. He made sure that I knew that if I didn't get this promotion, it was because he didn't want it for me, that he had something else for me, that this would be his way of moving me on. Um, but I'm flesh and blood, so when I got the bad news, I was sad, and I was hurt, and I had to sit in that. But God sat in it with me. And while this is happening, while I'm sitting in it with God, a funny thing happens to our memorial. So it sits on our bedroom dresser across from our bed. I can see it before I go to sleep and when I wake up in the morning. All the stones lay flat in a pile, so I can't see what's written on them. Um, but somehow, while all of this is happening, while I'm sitting in my disappointment with God, one stone becomes dislodged from the pile. It's my job stone, the one that says, GS on it for the bank that I work. It's somehow tipped over off the stack of stones, and the smooth surface of the rock is now pressed up against the glass vase so that it's clearly visible to me, and it's the first thing I see when I wake up and the last thing I see before I go to bed. The name of the blessing that God poured on me 18 years ago. 18 years ago, when I moved to the city, uh, I knew I was moving here to start my career at that bank. Um, what I didn't know is that I would meet my husband there. You know, what I didn't know was that I'd come to run a desk on a trading floor. What I didn't know is that I would learn things in this job that I could use in service of this church. It's no doubt one of the big blessings of my life. And it won't matter if I'm 40, 60, or 80 years old, I'm going to know this as one of the big blessings of my life. And lest I lose that proper perspective, lest my disappointment curdle into a root of bitterness, lest I let the devil seize my blessing. God used this memorial to do what it's supposed to do, to keep me at peak blessing. When I realized what God was doing with our memorial, I, I was amazed. You know, I went to the vase, spent some time with it, poked around, picked up some of the stones, read them, flipped them over, put them all back. And when I was done, the craziest thing happened. I mean, it didn't happen. The, the vase looked exactly the same, as if I had never touched it. Right? And I'm realizing a couple of things, that number one, this is not a one and done situation. This is a work, and I'm clearly still in it, to stay at peak blessing. 
And number two is, you know, it struck me that some of these stones, some of these blessings were prayed for, right? Like we prayed for our children and God gave them to us. But some of these blessings, some of these stones were not prayed for. Like my job, 18 years ago, I wasn't a believer. I didn't ask God for this job, but God gave it to me, right? He knew me, he had a plan for me. You know where I'm going with this next, right? A blessing we didn't ask for, something we didn't know we needed, a plan for us from the beginning. Jesus. So let me explain what I mean. We're moving into the third part of the message now, the hidden manna. Let's go back to grade school English again. Right, we talked about idioms and expressions. Now I want to talk about the five W's. Anyone remember? Who, what, when, where, why? Very good. Very good. The five W's, Mrs. Mastronardi told me in the fifth grade that the five W's were the key to writing a good story. And it turns out they're the key to understanding a good story. So if we think about the five W's, all morning we've been talking about the what, right? The what is the manna. You know, it's what we want, it's what we need, and it's what God gives to us, right? He gives it to us, and, um, and he keeps giving it to us. For 40 years, he gave the Israelites uh, manna from heaven. Um, but as important as it is this W, this what, right? Um, once we figure it out, we must quickly move to another W, and that's the who, the very first and primary W, right? Who, what, when, where, why, the who. As important as it is to get and keep the proper perspective on the manna, it's ultimately just a means to an end. That's another great expression, a means to an end. It means something that accomplishes something else more important or in this case, something that points to someone else more important. So let's go back to Exodus 16, right? It's the moment right before God provides manna for the first time. It says in the Bible, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know I am the Lord your God. After we wrestle down the what, we must turn to the who. You know, who provided the manna? The what is just the means, the who is the end. And it's so important that literally the entire Bible is pointed at answering this question of who. You know, over a thousand pages, over 30,000 verses, over 800,000 words, all to answer this question of who. Because once we know it's God, once we know God, then every other one of the W's that we spent our lives trying in vain to answer why, when, where, even what, it all starts to come into focus when we know God. God tries to tell his people again and again who he is, but they don't have the ears to hear. We don't have the ears to hear. God is too holy, and we're too far separated from him uh, because of sin. Our relationship with the Father is broken, and so he sends his son, Jesus, his only begotten son, to die on the cross to atone for our sins so that we might become reconciled with our creator. It's been the plan since the beginning. You know, even the handful of passages that we reference today are steeped in references to Jesus. You know, one of my favorites, and I mentioned this scene earlier, is um, in Exodus right before the 10th plague. Moses tells the Israelites to paint the blood of the lamb over their doors so that their homes would be spared. 
God is foreshadowing Jesus, you know, the saving power of his blood covering us. You know, it's been the plan since the beginning, hidden in plain sight, until the time was right for his true identity to be revealed. In John chapter 1, the Bible reveals, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus wasn't just hidden in the word. He wasn't just references and foreshadows. Jesus was the word. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And in case we still don't understand, a few chapters later in John, Jesus himself spells it out for us. He declares who he is. He connects all the dots for us. He feeds the 5,000 miraculously as the Israelites were fed by God. And then he says this, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. We thought we needed manna, but God knew we needed him. He knew we needed Jesus, the hidden manna, the real manna, the real bread, the blessing that we didn't know we needed, but God knew. He knew because this was the very thing he created us for, to be in relationship with him. And Jesus is the one who makes it possible. You know, we talked a lot today about building memorials for the manna. But once we realize it's not about the manna, it's about the hidden manna, it's about Jesus, then we're also called to build memorials to the hidden manna, to the one who blessed us. And we've actually been doing it all morning. You know, have you said God's name this morning? He says in Exodus 3 that his very name is a memorial to who he is. Singing songs of praise is a memorial to him. Um, tithing is a memorial to him. Praying is a memorial to him. Reading the Bible is a memorial to him. God has given us many, many ways to keep the proper perspective about who he is. These are the critical practices of the Christian life. You know, this morning I've really been talking to new believers, to new readers of the Bible, but I want to break from that just for a minute here at the end to talk to those of you who've been in faith for some time, those of you who've been believers for some time, um, because there's something here for you too. You know, our scripture this morning was from Revelations 2.17. It's a message from Christ to the church. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You know, we've been talking today about a means to an end. You know, for new believers, that means don't be content with manna when you can have the hidden manna, God himself. Um, But for those who've been believers for some time, it means don't be content with building memorials, right, with the practices of the Christian life, critical as they are. God says we're to pursue the white stone of Revelation 2.17, a renewed heart that beats as a living memorial to our creator, to our living God. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we sit here, um, Thanksgiving weekend and the beginning of Advent, as we start a new sermon series on the coming of Christ, um, I pray that we would encounter you, that what was once hidden would be revealed, and that we would hide ourselves in you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.
All right, so um, each Sunday after the message, um, we respond by taking communion as a church. Um, if you haven't grabbed one of these communion cups, please, um, there are a couple people walking around with baskets. Um, this is a memorial for believers to remember Christ's sacrifice and to experience him bodily. You know, Jesus himself set the example for what we're to do during the Last Supper. You know, so um, go ahead and grab a communion cup if you haven't already, um, and we'll just wait a minute here. Um, so we'll take the wafer first, as Jesus did. You know, Jesus gave thanks and broke the bread and gave it to his followers, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we'll drink the wine, as Jesus did. Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Um, so as you continue to respond to the message today, um, I'd encourage you to pray with one of the members of our prayer team who are in the back of the church. You know, if you don't know how to pray, but you want to, even the smallest urge will help you. Come back there and, um, and we'll pray with you. Um, you can also just sit where you are and reflect as the band continues to play. <laughs> 